1: There's an Mbappé finish for France and lovers of top-quality, semi-meaningful international football, while in World Cup qualifiers, Max Power as Scotland down Israel, and a big win for England over grammatical conjunction Andorra. We get the latest on Newcastle, as their supporters ask, why all the questions about Saudi money, Liverpool have had him for years, and much, much more in this Totally Football Show, in association with Paddy Power. Good day to you, discerning listener. Uh, and uh, with us today, we've got ooh, professional broadcasting's Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. Our man in Espania, Colin Miller. Hello, Colin. Hello, James. And shy, retiring Julian Laurence. All right. Hello, guys. Hello. Jules, mixed weekend for you. Hit, first of all, by the news that Paris Saint-Germain are no longer the richest club in the world. Then... That's true. Your mood was lifted by France's terrific Nations League triumph. The... Remarkable semi-final, and then Sunday night the victory again from behind over Spain. Wow!
2: Wow, Jimbo. Yeah, because we knew it was a big week because things had had not been good before the Euros, during the Euros, even since the Euros. When you draw against Bosnia, you draw against Ukraine, you beat Finland, but that's that was not you know spectacular in any way. So this is a big week. Usually, this week is friendlies or meaningless World Cup qualifiers. And this time they had the chance, big opportunity to make it to make things right because they were two huge games in something that you could actually win. Uh, and and they went for it. Not everything was perfect, far from it. Uh, and it never is really with the French. However, the way they played in the second half against Belgium was quite spectacular. And then and then that second half against Spain, almost scoring, then conceding, then coming back the way they did as well. Was pretty spectacular. I thought it was it was very much vintage France 2018. 36 percent of the ball, l- leaving the ball to Spain, trying to control the game, being quite solid defensively because up to the Oyarzabal goal, there was there was nothing from Spain really apart from having a lot of the ball and making us run. But apart from that, we controlled the attack pretty well. It was a bit wild towards the end, but certainly it looked a lot like the the, the France team that won at the World Cup in 2018.
1: Let's have a listen to. And Bappé's winning
3: goal. Matt, what do you what
1: do you think? That's how French comes to. It.
4: Do they put that music as a bed underneath goal commentary? Because I need to get some of that. If so, yeah. I feel like that would really, really raise my the quality of my output fairly significantly.
1: <laughs> I don't need, I think you're great a cappella, Matt. But um, <laughs> I'm you. not saying there's nothing that we could all take from that in terms of our approach and enthusiasm in general. Joie de vivre. Although <laughs> there was a lot of shouting from other people just after Mbappe's goal about why it was allowed to stand. Can someone break it down for us?
4: It was the sort of merest of touches of Eric Garcia, wasn't it? But it was interesting that uh, we didn't get to know that, certainly on on the British feed of the game, which was on Sky Sports, till, what, maybe two minutes before the end of the match when suddenly it was announced that there had been a replay that had seen <laughs> that there was a touch from Eric Garcia. So I was kind of befuddled up until that point as to, as to why it was allowed to stand and... Yes, lots of sort of hand-wringing about, oh, well, it was only, only a slight touch, so how come that means that, that you know the goal was allowed to stand? Well, that's that's the rules, no? I don't, I don't really understand why there was any controversy about it. The, the defender got a touch, therefore Mbappe wasn't offside.
1: Mm. Alright. Mbappe, I think it's fair to say Jules didn't have a good game, particularly beyond that. Although you might say that in itself constitutes a good game. Uh, who did?
2: I thought Hugo Lloris to start with, because especially at 2-1, he made those two saves at the end. The one on the Oyazabal volley uh, is good. The second one is a bit on him. But, but that, was, that was key, because France panicked a little bit for the last five minutes when they, they, they had the game and the control. And maybe I think psychologically what happened against Switzerland uh, at the Euros, where they were in the lead and then let that lead slip, I think maybe came back a little bit in the heads, and they were like, okay, let, let's go deep, or maybe not so deep. Or what do we do? They they lost the ball so cheaply, but Lloris was there this time, and that was good. I thought Karim Benzema again, not so much. In, I think in the first half of France, it was they controlled the game and tried to control and be very cautious. But after the breaks, it's him that gives the ball to Teo Hernandez when he hit the crossbar. That goal is absolutely amazing from him, mm. and even I think his movement on the Mbappe goal is very very important in the way France build up that goal and score it from Mbappe. So Benzema is just, I don't know, it's fantastic at his age. After so long without a national team, to come back in that kind of form, I I find it incredible.
1: Also, Benzema's passing stats with Griezmann were exceptional. I think 100% Jules, uh, none for none, basically. Does everyone hate Griezmann and why?
2: No, 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 no. Because if you look at the Belgium game, for example, I think it was 15 passes from... Mbappe to Griezmann, 12 from mm. Griezmann to Mbappé, and 12 from Benzema to Griezmann and 13 back or something like this. They that them three worked much better against Belgium than they did against against Spain. Against Spain, it was more of a of a flat front three. It was against Belgium. Griezmann played more as a 10 behind the two strikers, which I think for Griezmann it's easier because he plays between the lines. He's very available for Pogba or Rabio in, in 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 that case in that game to find him and then he can find Benzema and Mbappe when 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 they play as a flat front three he mm-hmm. has to play either right or left which he sees much less of the ball and is much more less uh, much less involved sorry with the other two I think the problem with Griezmann which is I think interesting I don't think you can have the three playing great together I don't think that's possible because Griezmann will have to almost sacrifice himself. For the rest of the team, I think you will see that as, as, as long as they play the three together, he will struggle far more for goals and for assists because that will have to be Mbappe, Benzema and your two wingbacks if they keep that formation. But then he's so important in linking the, the, the player in defending. And and having that work ethic and the work rate to come and help the midfielder, he did that so much yesterday against Ben in the second half. So much running, so much covering. You saw him at the end when he came off. He was he could not even sit down. He was standing off almost like a Sunday league, like a like a literally Sunday morning league player who just came off. Just he just needed the cigarettes and the beer, and that was it. He looked shattered for all the running that he did, mostly defensively. But I do think that he will have to sacrifice himself, which I think he's okay with it. But yesterday was his hundredth cap. Uh, he's played 57. France games in a row. If you think about it, he has not missed a single game for I think the last almost five years for France, starting every one of them, which I think is pretty remarkable. So I think he knows that he starts with the other two ahead of him now, will suffer a bit, but I think he's he's happy to take it.
1: Colin, that first half, when you were watching Spain exercise their usual control, were you feeling confident from their point of view or... That this was kind of heading down the usual road with them.
5: I thought this, the Spanish performance again; it, it was a good performance, It was a strong performance. They were cohesive. They were very, they were very well drilled, as they always are. In, in, in attack, they seemed to have, as you said, uh, control of the game in that sense. And the game seemed to be going to to, to Louis Enrique's plan. But this is this is always a thing, as we've spoken about before. The game-changing players were always were always with France. They always had the the threat of Kylian Mbappe, Karim Benzema. Pogba. Um, those are players that did, that change games and the players that are decisive. Whereas the the Spanish attack was very much different. They were very much built on, on on sort of team moves and playing it through midfield. And I thought, I mean, I thought this was another good performance. I thought I thought Spain were excellent in the in the semi final against Italy. And, and these two matches were very high quality technically. And I think what this week has shown is that the the nation's league has sort of enjoyed this this huge resurgence in in popularity where people were like well actually we want to see more of these matches against these top teams and the the issue with spain at the euros was the lack of of an end product in the final third and i thought that was maybe a problem again uh on, on sunday night against france and there was there was people saying well you know they were fight Alvaro Morata they were fight Gerard Moreno who are their two sort of first choice strikers as it were but I'm not really sure that made that much of a difference because I think Mikel Oyarzabal was was the star of the show for Spain I think Ferran Torres he he obviously seemed to be carrying a knock but I I actually think he's probably a better finisher than than Alvaro Morata certainly and hmm. and they 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 had options in attack but it's 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 the age problem that they had a little bit of bad luck with the Mbappe goal obviously it was it was correctly called onside but. It could have have gone either way. Luis Enrique was questioned coming into this over team selection, over squad selection, uh, bringing in Gavi into the squad, who hasn't completed a full professional game in his career, yet he's thrust into the semi-final and final of these high-profile matches, and, and he did excel. I think Luis Enrique isn't justified in that sense. And I think when you actually look through the Spanish team that started yesterday, a lot of those players aren't even first choice at club level uh marcus alonso certainly at, at chelsea maybe thinking well he's behind ben chilwell you've got laporte in central defense is a regular starter for manchester city obviously we spoke about gavi he's only played a couple of times for barcelona sergio busquets who's this fantastically decorated player yet there's been elements of barcelona's fan base like well maybe he is a little bit too old now maybe he is a reason why we are getting such bad results in europe and underperforming in europe so much just because of the aging processor and we've spoken about the the lack of a goal scorer so I think with all that in mind, the, 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 sort of, the sum of the parts massively outperformed the individuals um, for the mm. Spanish side. And I, I wouldn't lay any, any of the blame on that in terms of how they set up. But again, it was just a lack of game-changing talent and the final third was, was decisive in this one.
1: And a couple of brilliant goals from, from France. And what, what's the reaction been like Monday in, in France or post-game? And, and is Deschamps a bit more popular now with the press and with the players?
2: Yeah, he is a bit more because he he rectified a lot of things that we saw at the Euros where the atmosphere wasn't great within the team. He took a step back, which I think was a big mistake because this is still a team that needs him to be hands-on. And I think at the Euros, he, he really took a step back, which he should not have done. Uh, and now, so like when, when you say took a step back, what, what do you mean by that? I think he, he let that dressing room sort of auto manage itself a bit, a bit too much. I think he gave them a bit too many, too much responsibility. And if you look back at Russia in 2018, he was like, "Don't do this, don't do that." I mean, even them, I remember someone telling me they were playing um, table tennis. Okay, So that's fine. They had two table tennis uh, tables, and what they wanted to do was—I don't know how you call it in English—but you know, you play. There's a lot of you playing. So, mm. you hit the ball and then you run you run around mm. the table and then you hit the other side and then you run. And if you miss, then you're out and you keep playing until the last man is standing. I wouldn't call Dechon,
1: that ra- round the clock. What would you I mean? That,
2: uh, we, uh, it's a tournant. Round for robin,
4: us. round the clock, last man standing, all except right.
2: Yeah, so we call it tournant in French. Tournant, and okay. Deschamps saw that. And he, like, he went ballistic because he said, what if one of you were running around, hit yourself on the corner of the table yeah, and smash your thighs? Concern, yeah. but, but this is just, it's a funny story, just to highlight how much mental it was about everything. What are you doing? Where are you going? Who's together? What are the groups? In what room? How, how you know how much are you playing? Call of Duty or Fortnite or FIFA? All of that. And, and in, 20, in 2020, 2021, Not so much. And I think that was a big mistake. And now we went back to the old Deschamps, a bit to the old France team that leave you the ball, defends well, and then hit you so well on quick offensive transition. Like they did attacking transition. They were fantastic in that second half against Spain. So they could have scored four goals easily. So this is this is what it is. And I think he's got some credit for that, Deschamps. I think the fans are saying that you know what, maybe maybe we don't need to play better. Maybe we can go back to 2018 and win trophies the way we did then and the way we did now, and that works. And and then you've got Benzema and Mbappe who can who, who can be the guys to play like that. So why not?
1: While all this was going on, uh, Colin, the uh, the the World Cup qualifying picture for Spain has got a bit complicated, as was feared. Sweden beating Kosovo. Over the weekend means they are now only one point behind Spain in their World Cup qualifying group, having played one less match. They're going to be hosting Greece on Tuesday, could be two points clear after that. So mid-November, Spain-Sweden looking absolutely crucial. How worried should Spain be?
5: I think there's definitely an element of concern that, that Spain might not finish top of the group and I think that when you look at Spain's game against Sweden and they still have to play Greece as well and, and, they, and they were held by Greece in the opening day and those, those are the teams that Spain struggle against. You know, they We've seen them play against the top teams, we've seen them play against Italy, we've seen them play against France and, and they, they enjoy the space that they're afforded and they enjoy teams who just don't sit back and still got pressure and hit them on the counter-attacks but... Against these almost, I wouldn't want to say second tier nations, but certainly teams who are slightly more, more, more comfortable with with just just holding their shape and frustrating Spain in that sense. Spain do struggle because they know they're going to get seventy five, eighty percent of the ball, but it's it's getting in behind the defence and and it's taking the opportunities when they present themselves. And there's always that opportunity against Spain of hitting them on the counter attack. Whilst there is, as I said, whilst there is almost like a kind of wave of support for Luis Enrique and a wave of support for this current team I think there's still that underlying concern as we saw in the groups of the Euros when they, were, when they drew with Sweden when they drew with Poland that they do tend to struggle in these matches
1: mm. They're not the only nation that actually is, has a slightly risky position regarding top spot Italy as well Broadly speaking, though returning to the Nations League, uh, absolutely terrific. No, Matt gave us on Sunday night probably the best 120 seconds of of the season so far. The semi, and you know, a, a fantastic finale. Semi-final, France against Belgium was was brilliant. Uh, with just great stuff, and, and what a shame it's going to get knocked on there by a twice yearly, was it twice monthly <laughs> World Cup?
4: Yeah, thanks, Arsene. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of finding its position, isn't it, in the football pyramid of of not a, a major tournament and and not a friendly and this kind of hybrid concept which means that you get things like Gabby starting at 17 years old which he obviously wouldn't do in a World Cup final uh, which makes it so so yeah refreshing and I think in all weeks you know it was a nice sort of salve to the sore that was the Premier League last week to kind of forget about that and enjoy international football for a bit and the games, it's all about the quality of the games at the end of the day, isn't it? I think if, if the second half of the final had gone like the first half, we might not be talking about the Nations League in such reverential terms because it was pretty, I don't know, you could say tactically fascinating, I would call it dull, um, but the second half was outstanding. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been great, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's what you should get when you get uh, comparable teams of excellent quality playing each other, which is kind of the point of international sport, really, I think. Mm. All
1: killer, no filler. We'll have more internationals, the nice and simple World Cup qualifiers, later on in the show. Next up, though, Newcastle.
0: Paddy Power, Fan TV here outside Wembley, where we're talking to massive England fan Nathan, who was here for all the games during the Euros. Yeah, too right, I was. Yeah, Southgate, you're the one. So you're Is looking the, forward to England's right? qualifiers this week, Nathan? Nah, mate, there's no England games this week, <laughs> are it? The World Cup qualifiers might not draw the same hardcore fans as the Euros but Paddy Power are still offering money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down Paddy Power Pre-match bet with bets only min odds one fifth per leg min 4 plus legs max free bet 10 pounds per day Excludes enhanced match odds on an exclusive T's and C's apply 18 plus Org.
3: This episode is supported by season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds Small Town Welsh Football Club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Patch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around.
1: Newcastle takeover, everybody. Uh, 19 Premier League sides have called for an emergency meeting to discuss the impact on the league of these new controversial owners and in one or two cases, how black the kettle is. Uh, Relatives of victims of the state's appalling human rights record have been speaking out over what the deal represents, uh, none of which, of course, will derail the deal. And Newcastle fans counter that Saudi money is all over the rest of the UK economy, so why should they be the ones uh, to boycott it? Anyway, the deal is done. So what does it actually mean for Newcastle, the football club? George Corkin joins us now, fresh from writing, what, about 300 pieces over the weekend. George, Mm, how are you feeling?
6: Fresh is definitely not the right word. Fresh is the last word that I would use to describe me.
1: Right, but invigorated, I imagine, by this extraordinary turn of events.
6: Well, I mean, it's it's incredible to be writing about something else, um, for good and bad. I mean, I was at Wolverhampton Wanderers away a little over a week ago. It's astonishing to think that I was there for that. Came back feeling, I think I sort of wrote about, you know, the club just being in perpetual limbo and had friends in the UAE end, and to a man and woman, they all talked about how how flat it was and you know anybody who knows anything about Newcastle United and and away ends knows that that you know that would be a very very troubling troubling sign and then you know here we are a week later after a takeover that is transformative in every possible in every possible sense and um, you know the big thing or 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 the first thing is to sort of wave goodbye Mainly with two fingers at uh, at Mike Ashley after fourteen years, and then of course you know here we are here we are discussing a, you know d- discussing an ownership model that has the power to transform the club into sort of everything that um supporters could possibly wishful but you know there is also a, a grave downside to that as well so trying to pick my way through that trying to make sense of it is has not been difficult both as um uh, sorry has been difficult both as a journalist and as someone who's watched the club all my life
1: right you interviewed amanda Savi for the for the athletic and she she'd just been kind of through the ringer of, of, of a press tour as well she seemed to indicate in in your piece that she's going to be very much uh, part of the decision making process pif Supplying the backing was the impression that that I got. Is that fair? And, and what do you think the likely yep. plans are in the short term?
6: Yeah, I mean the asset managers was how it was described to me. Um, so they are taking a hands-on role. You know, they they are effectively charged with running the club. It doesn't mean that they won't bring in. Specialists for you know specialist positions like you know obviously manager and CEO and 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 things like that. But um, but yeah no they're 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 running the club. I mean I think that's going to be one of the. I mean she did say that if she if she doesn't do it very well she won't be doing it for you know for very long. So but that's the plan. And um, I think we're in for kind of an interesting short term because you know these people haven't run football clubs before. It is a ownership model that's split split three ways. So there'll be three different sets of ideas and thoughts and I'm you know, I'm sure that having worked together on this deal that, you know, they'll they'll be aligned and there'll be good, good sort of relationships there. But it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because one of the things you would always want in football, in fact one of the things that Newcastle under Ashley was not very good at was being fleet of foot. And and making decisions quickly. So how that works in practice will be will be very interesting. They're saying that they're going to be process driven, which you know means that things will take take a while. And I do expect, you know, certainly to start with, that the big calls are going to have to go back to Saudi and get sign off there. And apparently, PIF is not sort of renowned for taking quick decisions. So uh, we'll have to see have to see how that plays out. But yeah, very very different and very interesting.
1: Okay, one decision which I guess most people expect in the very short term is about Steve Bruce's future. Is he about to be sacked? One game short of his one thousandth match in management.
6: I would very much expect so. Yes, I mean that's 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 always been the um, thought of Amanda Staveley's sort of football team that that should happen. That you know that there's a that there's urgency there. They're saying no decisions have been made. I think that's a reflection of of that sort of process that I referred to. That everything has to. Be very, very de- deliberate, um, but yeah, no. I mean, the, my expectation from day one is that is that Steve Bruce. You know, I don't like talking about people being made unemployed, by the way, but um, but my expectation is that is that he'll go and that Graham Jones will be would be caretaker for that if they haven't got anybody lined up. But there, I mean, I do think there has to be a degree of sort of realism about about all this that it has caught people on the hop, even even them certainly you know certainly her football team so they are mulling over lists of managers but that isn't the same as having already approached them or or taking taking a decision about who to approach so um it's sort of early days still in that um in that part of it
1: Mm, supporters are busy mulling over lists of players uh, in the meantime i imagine there's absolutely no kind of pointers you can give us on that but it's fair to say, though, that there's a potential to spend in quite uh, in enormous fashion without having any concerns about FFP because of the way that Mike Ashley had been running the club.
6: Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that's the way that's the way it's going to work for now. I mean, I think there'll be there will be money to spend in January, but I think we'll be sort of talking, you know, maybe forty, fifty million quid, that kind of thing. And again, there'll be money. Uh, to spend in the summer. But the way it was put to me, I mean, I I, I spoke to Amanda Stavely, I also spoke to Mirdad uh, Gudusi who's Amanda Stavely's husband, but is also a human being in his own right and, and a fundamental part of this, um, uh, of the deal. I mean, that's been quite important to say. And, you know, they're not going to be going out to buy a, a player for £100 million because, I mean, it, it just, it would not make any sense for where the team is at the, at the moment and what they need. There's far more chance of them Spending £100 million, but spending it on five players, you know, £20 million each, or four players, 20, £25 million each, because that makes more sense. People shouldn't forget that the team are 19th in the table, they haven't won a game this season. I mean, that's pretty important. They need to build a squad, and you can't just do that by plonking in a player for £100 quid. So I think, again, it's going to be a very. Deliberate approach. This is being discussed as an investment. It's not just a chance to, to put money in and be damned. It's going to be. It's going to be grown as a business. So, you know, Amanda, Amanda Staveley uh, did speak the other night about Newcastle winning the Premier League within five or ten years. But it will take time to get to that point. And of course, there are also bound to be mistakes along the way. I mean, there just they just will be.
1: Mm. In the meantime, George, this sudden transformation? of Newcastle from the kind of shuffling zombies of the of the wrong end of the Premier League to <laughs> the richest club in the world. What's been the most extraordinary part of it?
6: Oh, I don't know actually. I'm still I'm still sort of trying to come to terms with it. I'm not sure if I have really it's been such a uh, it's been such a sort of uh, whirlwind few days. I mean I I wasn't sort of flat out over the weekend writing and stuff and so I've sort of have have had a chance to, to think about it. I mean, I suppose one thing... Well, I mean, a huge, huge conflict in my own head, I suppose, is one thing to say. Um, I know that, um, you know, whatever I write or whatever I say at this point... There's going to be a sort of an asterisk next to next to Newcastle's name and sort of next to my name. I can I've kind of made a mistake. I mean, I desperately want to sort of engage with people and uh, engage with fans and sort of engage in our comment section and things like that. But I I sort of know, having sort of dipped in and looked at it, what what the sort of reality is, and that the involvement of Saudi Arabia is. Um, I'm trying to you know I'm I'm still trying to make sense make sense of it. I mean, I don't want. You know, I don't want Saudi money anywhere near football. I don't want it anywhere near Newcastle. And I sort of read about uh, Khashoggi and uh, human rights abuses, and I feel physically sick. You know, I I have this sort of um, romantic vision of football being fan owned and clubs being community assets, and and all of that. But I'm also aware that that's not the rule of the game in the Premier League, and. Those things don't figure very highly in the owners and directors test, and to me, that's appalling, and um, uh, should be a source of embarrassment and and shame to football. But the you know the rule the, the rules of the game I spoke about are that money wins, and money won a long time ago, and this is another example of money winning. And um, I suppose the conflict that a lot of Newcastle fans have, and that I certainly have, is that if this if these are the rules of the game, then you know, Newcastle have passed their owners and directors test and now they get a chance with money and um, I can't say I'm comfortable with that. At the same time there is huge excitement in the city and there is optimism about the future and the new owners have said absolutely the right thing so far and they've done the right thing so far and they've communicated more directly with supporters than Ashley did in, in 14 years and so you know my job is to, my job as a as a journalist is try is to try and make sense of all that and to try and reflect all that and the way my head feels at the moment it's impossible
7: hm mm.
1: well i think that's fair it's it's a time when sports journalism is confronting things which i think they've been uh, people in that area have been reasonably lucky about having to or being able to ignore if they wanted to but increasingly and i think the world cup is going to be another great example of this yeah. that's no longer possible but some excellent pieces from you and 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 uh, other uh, people from the athletic over the weekend uh, detailing this extraordinary uh, change in the northeast uh, george uh, have a great week and i hope you um, find some answers and, and we'll speak to you soon
6: thank you find some sleep first off that'd be nice yeah. <laughs>
1: Jules, you had this a little bit with, uh, well, quite a lot, actually, with Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah. seems like you've been able to live with the ethical concerns quite easily.
2: <laughs> I knew that was coming, Jules. Yeah, I have. I, we, we had in the family, I know a lot of people, friends from school, who decided to give their season ticket back and who are not going to the Parc des Princes anymore, who says, this is not, this is not my club. The, this is not the values that I represent which I completely understand and, and respect and I suspect there will be some Newcastle fans who will be like this I think mostly they will be they will be very happy right now and they will still follow the club and support it and, and hoping to get the best team possible but I can certainly understand the concern in our house and we talked about it at length uh, with my brother and my dad and all of that and I think you have to see it as a as a football club not as a a political uh, entity not as a, a political vector of of any sort. Uh, you know whoever owns your club you know you know I don't Nasser Khalifa is the phd president right now he he's not doing anything wrong p- personally i understand that the the qatar royal family and what happens in qatar right now in terms of human rights is not great at all i get it and and i think a lot of charities and association have I've, uh, I've mentioned it before, and, 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 I, and I get it. I just think that my football club is run in Paris by people who are in Paris, are in the offices in Paris. Okay, the money comes from there, but I just want it. And maybe it's very naive, or maybe I'm just closing my eyes and don't want to see really the, the bigger picture, which I get the criticism if, if that's the case. But that's, that's the kind of way I saw it, but it's probably not the best way, I, I have to be honest.
1: Mm. Well, just kind of in summary, it's not your
2: fault that those guys bought your club. Exactly. And I just and I, and I just think that whoever to a certain extent, I guess, maybe. And I think right now in Paris, especially with PSG fans, there's a lot of people saying, "Oh yeah, but Saudi Arabia is worse than Qatar." I'm not I, I don't know if they are or if they're not or but but certainly the the, the way the way we saw it was my you know I want to support my club if it's you Jimbo owning it one day and you've got not much money but I will still be there I'm there if it's Qatar I will be there probably if it was Saudi Arabia I have to be honest you know this is football at the end and I just want to support my team and this is this is my hometown as well so but i it's it's um it's conflictual i I can understand why it's difficult
1: Matt and Colin you, any thoughts on on Newcastle and their the their new dawn
4: yeah Um, just let me delete my Twitter account and then I'll tell you Um, I do think that it's it's bizarre that, that there seems to be so little pushback from Newcastle supporters you know normally you'd get a kind of balanced reporting of this, with with some vox pops of supporters, you know, outside the stadium who aren't drinking beer while stressed as shake, saying, "Hang on a minute, this doesn't sit right with me." I know it was supposed to be what ninety four percent approval from Newcastle supporters of the of the takeover, but it does seem strange to me that there haven't been that many dissenting voices amongst Newcastle support, and and you can understand that to an extent because of the of the Mike Ashley factor, etc. But for it to be so almost universally positive something which is kind of so blatantly disturbing is is really odd i think i'm i'm really surprised that there hasn't been a more prominent backlash and, and i would point to that bizarre statement from united with pride the the newcastle lgbtq+ fan group who kind of basically said well, yeah, the human rights record's not good, but but maybe owning Newcastle will turn that round. I just thought it was extraordinary, and and yeah, you know, it, I guess that goes to show that sports washing is pretty effective.
5: I I think there's two strands to this in the sense that you can't have football supporters as the as the moral arbiters of society whenever, whenever a government and whenever large sections of, of, of media and other large companies and society in general is very, very happy to, to accept um, similar sources of income without, without having to question themselves too much. Hmm. But I think separately to that, you, ha- you do have the question of, whenever you do uh, publicly question this sort of a deal, you have a, a stream of, of people who will who will respond to you and say, well, oh, but, but what about this? And, and, and what about all the, the, these different elements where there is Saudi money already in place? And I, I kind of just can't help but think a lot of this is being done in bad faith because I accept that Newcastle fans have had Fourteen years of of pretty dreadful ownership, and and let's be, let's be honest about this. I don't think Mike Ashley should have been uh, allowed to own a football club either, and and his business practices are not exactly something that that are to be held up as, as as a bastion of morality. But that being said, I I just think that Newcastle fans should, if you're going to be honest about this, I mean like look we we're we're obviously very happy he's gone, and that that's completely acceptable. But the other side of it is, you know. We are getting a lot of money and we can now compete uh, alongside alongside major clubs. We probably have more more resources than all the other Premier League clubs combined in, in terms of this this huge mass of wealth that's taken over. And that's that's a very exciting thing from a merely sporting point of view. So I don't have any issue with that. But I don't like the sense that it is just so so strange how, how a lot of fans or, or what seems to be a lot of fans, and I realise this could be quite a quite a noisy minority certainly online or on social media will will excuse things that are
4: that are beyond excusable
5: Hmm.
4: it's probably worth pointing out as well uh we might not have seen the end of mike ashley in english football reports over the weekend that, that he's sniffing around derby county and and might be the person to try and bail them out of trouble so yeah good luck with that derby
1: it might just work out this time all right well that one's going to rumble Uh, You're quite right about the reaction that certainly we've seen from Totally Football Show online. Now, I can understand uh, Newcastle supporters' loyalty to their club, which I think is behind a a lot of the positions they've taken, because I think if you'd look at it as a straight ethical question, and this does apply to every other area in which Saudi money has entered this economy and and all others, uh, then then it's a pretty black-and-white issue. But, uh, you know, as I said to Jules, not their fault, I suppose the club that they've always supported has now got this thing behind it. Anyway, next up, World Cup qualifiers.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com
3: You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which might just come in handy when Brighton start being Brighton again and go back to outperforming their XG and not winning. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum 4 plus legs. Max free bet. £10. Excludes enhanced matchups. t and C's apply. It's over teams only. And please gamble responsibly.
1: World Cup qualifiers, everyone. A mixed weekend uh, for local sides. Excellent from England. Knicks for Wales, disastrous for Northern Ireland and sadly largely irrelevant for the Republic of Ireland. Thriller of the weekend, meanwhile, was Scotland's game with Israel. We talked this up last Thursday and my word, it didn't disappoint. Scotland twice coming from behind to win a rollercoaster encounter with Israel. 3-2 on Saturday with the winning goal coming in the 94th minute, courtesy of Scott McTominay. Here's Ali McCoist. Well, that was followed by the traditional Baccarat sing-along, and present for all of this was our guest from last Thursday, Laura Brannan of Motherwell, who joins us again now. Laura, you must have been exhausted after that.
7: I think I'm still exhausted now, just by watching back all the videos again and going through all the emotions, <laughs> but it's a happy exhaustion.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, extraordinary a range of emotions, the, the, the way the, the game went, and, and that climax with Scotland for once on the right side of a last-minute deciding goal. How, how does that feel? Uh,
7: see, if, you, if you'd written this script, you would laugh at how clichéd the Hollywood film was because it's just, it's silly. Everything went in our favour and everything just went like the perfect scenario. It's, it's not really Scotland if they don't put, it, put you through it, though, do they?
1: Right. When you say went perfectly, you, you mean the, the kind of setbacks that then set up the, the the dramatic triumph at the end. Zahavi's brilliant free kick to start, Lyndon Dyke's less brilliant penalty, which would have pulled uh, Scotland level. And then the uncertainty when he did score about whether his boot was too high, etc.
7: Oh, th- this game had absolutely everything. I mean, you, you have that big build up with the, the atmosphere in a stadium. It's the first sellout crowd in about four years. And we go goal down after five minutes and you're standing there thinking, all right, okay, here we go, typical Scotland. And then to equalise with an absolute stunning strike from John McGinn. Brilliant. And then literally two minutes later, your, your spirits are absolutely crushed again by, by going 2-1 down. And you're thinking, okay, here we go again. Um, then in stoppage time of the first half to have a penalty and to miss that, you're thinking that, that would have been perfect going to the break Having drawn level, the atmosphere would have been brilliant. But instead, you know, the refs are getting booed off the pitch. The atmosphere is quite tense at that point. It's not perfect. And then obviously into the second half, the whole VAR debacle with dykes, and that the, the the high boot and in inverted commas, only for six minutes injury time at the end. It's it was the perfect response considering how much we kind of overcame their time wasting. And it was kind of ironic that their time wasting then led to the six minutes extra time that then. Gave us the goal. <laughs> it was just absolutely perfect.
1: Karma. So the 94th minute. It's the first time Scotland has scored a last-minute winner in 11 years. I read. <laughs> and what what was it like in the stadium when that happened?
7: Us absolute carnage. It was insane. It, it, there was a there was a, a campaign a couple of years ago where we we were kind of scoring late goals, maybe around the kind of 85 to 89th minute. But there was never really a kind of last gasp. 94th minute winner like that. We, we did score obviously the two late goals against England, the Lee Griffiths free kicks, but obviously we all know how that ended, so it wasn't the same emotions at the at the full-time whistle. But the to have the the 94th minute winner, to, to look over to the ref and the linesman to see, yes, it's been given, we're allowed to celebrate this time, and then the full-time whistle to go straight into the songs and the, the party. I mean, no one left the stadium for a good solid 15 minutes after the final whistle. No one left their seat. And I've not seen Hamden like that for a long, long, long time. The atmosphere felt almost like like a release of emotion because obviously so many people that are in this stadium haven't been back at Hamden for a couple of years now. There was a whole it felt like almost like a new generation of fans were there as well. I knew personally, I knew a few people bringing like their kids for the first time. I know people had been been to like down to London for the Euros and that had been their first game for Scotland game, and it felt like new fans had. Turned up at Hamden for this one, and it, it you kind know, of something special happened. And I mean, they'll be captured for life now, hopefully. And mm. we'll just have, and it'll always the, be this way for
1: them, won't it? Supporting Scotland,
7: <laughs> it's, it's never simple, never ever easy. I mean, to get the three goals and to get that drama, that they may feel that like they're being spoilt now because that's not going to happen mm. in every game. And we can now look forward and say, Look, we're two wins away from, from reaching the playoffs, we're potentially even one win away if things go our way on Tuesday night. That isn't the Scotland way for us. We're so used to it going down to the very last game against the biggest team in the, the group. So yeah, this is this is um we're almost kind of spoilt right now this this year especially with the Euros and the results going our way. But this is this is a fantastic year for Scotland fans.
1: Mm. Were well, you away in the Faroe Islands on on Tuesday? Uh, historically, it had been one or two issues, a couple of draws, a couple of decades ago. But more recently, you beat them four nil in the reverse uh, fixture uh, at the start of, of, of qualifying. So fingers crossed for that, that it's going to set things up nicely for the Moldova game. And then and then Denmark, who meantime are seven wins out of seven at the top of the group and yet concede a single goal. Let's talk a little bit, though, Laura, about the uh, music at the end. Uh, I'm, I'm quite troubled by the selections. I mean, England have this issue as well, Sweet Caroline and that. But Baccarat?
7: <laughs> it's became our unofficial national anthem I think <laughs> so this all kind of derived from there was a player who was in the squad a couple of years like, well, last year almost um, Andrew But god it must have been about maybe six, seven, eight years ago now he went on a stag do and he dressed up in drag and filmed a kind of music video singing this song um, <laughs> I Can Boogie and when he got called up to the Scotland squad for the first time a year ago, around the time of the playoffs and trying to reach the Euros, I think it almost came from a, an in-joke in the squad, where they were obviously slagging him for what happened on the stag do. So when we qualified in Serbia, the videos that emerged from the dressing room were the players all singing this song, um, with obviously this player like being kind of ribbed for it. And it just kind of came from that. As a result, everyone, obviously, it was during lockdown and everything, so all the fans were at home watching the Serbia game last year. And it just kind of came from that that everyone then joined in and were playing that song, singing along to it the same way, replicating what the players were doing in the dressing room. And we never really had a chance to celebrate and sing that song in person together. So to play it at full time was almost like the first time, even through the Euros and all the excitement of the summer, to actually, have that in the stadium and everyone singing it together was the first time we've actually got to do that. Oh, brilliant, Colin.
1: What what's the unofficial anthem for Northern Ireland?
5: The other, the unofficial anthem was Sweet Caroline for years, and then England fans stole it, but Northern <laughs> Ireland fans had stolen it from somewhere else, and it has just sort of spiralled. So,
1: Laura, hopefully, we'll be hearing "Yes Sir, I Can Boogie" uh, ringing out in the Faroe Islands on
7: Tuesday. <laughs> It would be class. I mean, the, the permutations obviously point towards if Israel and Austria both lose their games and we win on Tuesday night, we would clinch the playoff spot. As I said, it's very unlikely. That's not the Scotland way. So I don't think anyone's really expecting that. But to then take the, the party into Moldova next month would be class because then we've got Denmark as the final game at home. And if we can bring everyone back to Hamden again for the sellout crowds in a game where we actually don't have to win, would just be... We'd really top off this year because it's Steve Clark has taken us to levels that I don't think anyone really expected.
1: Scotland doing all right then. Wales, yeah, a 2-2 draw against the Czech Republic. They were leading at half-time. Then keeper Danny Ward with a horrible error on Aaron Ramsey's back pass, allowing the Czechs back into the game. Jules. Got a lot of Welsh fans in your house. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunate, Danny Ward's own goal, but not the bad,
2: yeah. not a bad result. No, and I thought they played well. Uh, I, I love seeing Aaron Ramsey in a Welsh show. He's, he's now played more minutes for Wales since March than he's played for Juventus, which is quite incredible, really. Uh, and we've used this for many players in the past, but... When we say oh the national team is, is re- really like a breath of fresh air for him, or is that kind of hugs for him? It literally is, because otherwise he would not play much football. So it's good to see him. I hope that he can bring that momentum with with Juve and maybe have a, a bit of minutes with with Max Allegri, although I don't think so. But it was good to see, it's good to see them. You know, it's it's been tough considering what happened to Ryan Giggs, considering the injuries that they had for some of the the big name players. So they're very much still in the shot, certainly for for the playoff position. I'm not sure mm. they finished top of that group, but you never know with them. They've been so surprising since 2015 that anything is possible.
1: Anything is possible. They are level with the Czechs in second place, groupie, mm. but they have a game in hand. Elsewhere, Republic of Ireland got a 3-0 win in Azerbaijan on Saturday. That's their first competitive win under Stephen Kenny. Fantastic stuff. Of course, doesn't make much odds in terms of qualifying because that's that ship has sailed but nice to see a brace for Callum Robinson you might say giving the the team a shot in the arm even if he won't accept one himself he's he's uh, revealed that he's not going to have the COVID-19 vaccine despite twice contracting the virus that's quite an interesting position to take but not uncommon in football there's something about footballers that that seems to make them particularly averse to, in this case, having injections.
5: I, I think for a lot of footballers, when you, when you're in that age group of you, you feel like if you, if you do get this virus, and obviously Calum Robinson has had it twice, that you know you're, you're going to build up immunity to it, and you're not going to be too badly affected. And I think that the the flip side of this as well that many people don't consider is how footballers are essentially educated and trained in the sense that whatever you're putting in your body is very specifically formulated by sports science and nutrition hmm. and they might be skeptical of of any of any other sort of uh, advancements um or, or medicines that, that other people might sort of take without, without really thinking too much about it so i don't want to be too critical of footballers in that sense But again, I think the flip side of that is before these players are all fully vaccinated are we really going to be able to fully move on away from this and to be able to to completely move all all restrictions and 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 take those out and i think the other factors especially whenever you have these international matches and players are traveling between countries and then coming back with particular quarantine situations and i know we've seen that with south american countries certainly with the last international break that could create complications going forward um so obviously it would be preferable if if players were were to, were to take up the opportunity uh, to have the vaccine, but but there is a greater scepticism within that, within that um, not just that age group, but within that sort of mindset of of looking after their bodies and, and not not taking any risks with 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 any any injections or anything like that.
3: I
1: mean, a lot of people would say that it's a much bigger risk and would be looking after their bodies much better if they were to have the injection against the potentially fatal disease. Matt, what, what's your take?
4: Yeah. I would agree with that, and I think it's it's incredibly disappointing that that footballers have been allowed such privilege over the last year, and and they're not prepared to kind of protect wider society by being vaccinated. But uh, the risk of um, plugging something, an outlet that's not the Athletic. Alison Rudd did a, a good column in the in the Sunday Times this week, and and she opined that perhaps part of the issue is that everything's immediate in football and and footballers might be concerned about the effects of the vaccine, i.e. you feel a bit rough for a couple of days and if that Mm. happens around the match day then you lose your place in the team and then you you don't get back in. And, And to me that... That seems slightly more plausible than than the fact that they're all wild conspiracy theorists and anti vaxxers and and flat earthers. I just I, I just don't really buy that. Um, I do think that that may be. And actually, this is something we spoke about on the Totally Football League show last Thursday regarding Callum Robinson. That that football dressing rooms are echo chambers in the in the same way that that social media is. And if there's one dominant voice in that dressing room who says no, I'm not getting it, then that can easily permeate throughout the rest of the squad. And it seems to be a shame that 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 is kind of what's happening. The dominant voice is I'm not getting the vaccine rather than I am. You know, you had Tammy Abraham speaking about it really eloquently last week, I thought, where he said, you know, I've had the vaccine because I've had COVID and it wasn't very nice, essentially, and I don't want to get it again. And I want to protect my family and other people, particularly in this new country where I am. It would be pretty poor form for me to come over here and, and not do it. And I, I just think it's bizarre that that's not, the prevalent thought and and it's a shame that footballers seem to be eroding all that goodwill that they built up what 18 months ago with the terrific stuff they did for the NHS etc and it feels like a bit of a slap in the face for those guys now that they're, mm. they're not prepared to to get vaccinated
1: it's a shame you deleted your twitter account though Max you <laughs> yeah. have fun with that uh Colin yeah. let's talk about Northern Ireland though whose qualification hopes took a big knock on Saturday with that two nil defeat in Switzerland Is it fair to say that the result, the fact that Switzerland won didn't seem particularly unfair, given the way the two teams were playing, but that the red card for Jamal Lewis does?
5: The red card decision uh, completely influenced the outcome of the match. Northern Ireland came to sit back, to sit deep, to frustrate Switzerland and to play, or to keep it for 0-0 for as long as possible because Northern Ireland really needed to to win this to have any any serious ambitions of, of finishing in second. Um, Jamal Lewis was was booked um, early on in the match and in the 37th minute I think he he went to take a throw in and with the ball out of play for 23 seconds and the ball in his hand for 15 seconds he received a second yellow card for time-wasting this was controversial in the sense that, yes, Northern Ireland had been running down the clock. They'd been breaking up the play, trying to break up the game, as you would expect them to do. Um, and the the suggestion was that Paddy McNair had been told that, that Northern Ireland players had the stop time race to know where they would eventually be booked. Now... When Jamal Lewis went to take a throw in, the, the TV footage shows that there was no warning uh, from the referee to, to speed it up. There was no, like, if you if you don't do it right now, I want to book you or whatever. So he went over to book him, and I think you could realise in the referee's face that he that he hadn't realised he hadn't already booked uh, Lewis. So whenever he got the second yellow card out, he's like, oh, I've made, a, I've made a big mistake here, because essentially it was a very rash decision. You very rarely see players getting yellow carded for time racing in, in the first half. So I think it was a rash ill thought out decision by the referee and it was compounded by the fact that it was the second yellow and he, and he had to send them off in that, in, in that instance and he couldn't go back on it but yeah this was always going to be a match when Wood and Ireland were up against it because they were without their best defender Johnny Evans they were without their informed midfielder Ali McCann who's been really good at Preston and they were fight both of their informed strikers uh, Shane Lavery and Liam Boyce so whenever you strip away their that kind of core of the team that spine they're really really fragile in terms of the depth of the squad and that was that was exposed, um, and yes, Switzerland is a really good team. Um, mm. They were the second, they were they were the highest of the second seeds um, for this qualification campaign. So, whenever you have both them and Italy in the same group, it, it's it's incredibly difficult to to get close to them. And and Switzerland might now have have their eyes on on top spot. Um, but yeah, they're very 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 strong team, and and they were totally dominant in this game. It probably should have been more than 2-0 in the end.
1: It's interesting, Italy, who had this incredible redemption story going from missing out on the World Cup for the first time in 60 years back in 2018 and and then winning the Euros this summer and now potentially looking at a really difficult situation regarding qualifying for the next World Cup because Switzerland are now three points behind them. If they win against Lithuania Tuesday, they'll be level. They then will be meeting with Italy in mid-November. And then the other game that Italy have to play around then is a trip to Northern Ireland, Colin. I, I don't know if the Battle of Belfast is still part of kind of folklore in in Northern Ireland football circumstances, but of course it was a trip to Northern Ireland which which cost Italy their place at the nineteen fifty eight World Cup as well.
5: Yes, and I think the last time Italy played in Belfast, it was nil nil. Um, and these those like away to Northern Ireland, that Windsor a park. Whenever there's a full a full crowd, it's it's never easy for any away side, and and Italy had obviously they've, they've now relinquished it but they had this long unbeaten record but that draw at home to bulgaria earlier in the group could could prove costly for them um, bulgaria who are very much a hit and miss team they, they lost 3-1 at lithuania for the weekend so apparently the, the drop points in that could be crucial if they were to lose against switzerland but the trip to the trip to northern ireland certainly is, is a difficult game northern ireland remain very strong at home um despite despite having a couple of setbacks in recent times. And uh, I mean, I, I think with, with, with a full hoist behind them and with some of those some of those players back in contention, uh, Anna might, might fancy their chances of taking a point in this one.
1: Crikey. Could it all go wrong for Italy again? We'll see. Anyway, we'll talk more about that uh, when, of course, the November fixtures hove into view. But Matt, England, for them, a 5-0 win over Andorra. Ben Chilwell Jack Grealish scoring the first international goals the big talking point though for for many people afterwards is Phil Foden being the new Andrea Pirlo.
4: Yeah, it's you always have to ask asterisk everything don't you against Andorra with it was against Andorra but yeah Foden in in that kind of deeper position spraying passes around like he was Andrea Pirlo absolutely magnificent to watch and and because that's the area where England's, you know, the widely held opinion is that's why England didn't beat Croatia in the 2018 World Cup semi-final because they ceded possession of central midfield. That's why they struggled after scoring early against Italy in the final of, of Euro 2020. So that is the potential solution to the problem for Gareth Southgate. It, as good as Declan Rice and, and Calvin Phillips have been, they're not that kind of player. So yeah, Foden just absolutely flourished in this game. Some outrageous passes from him. But for a game against Andorra, I thought there were a lot of talking points to come out from it. You, you mentioned Grealish getting his first goal, which is obviously uh, something which he's been waiting for for a while and not often that the England goalkeeper manages to get an assist, which hmm. Sam Johnson did uh, for that one. But maybe this is me talking with my Chelsea hat on. But I thought that Ben Chilwell had a really significant Weekend, Um, Actually, a couple of weeks because he came into the Chelsea team for that game against Southampton, gave away a penalty, but then was helped out by technology with the goal that he scores being flagged by the goal line technology to say that it was over the line. The referee hadn't spotted it. And then here he gets his first international goal, but only after a VAR intervention. Uh, so it feels like technology's helped him out, and of course, he was only in the squad because Rhys James pulled out injured, so mm-hmm. hopefully this will be at the start of him kicking kicking back into gear and You could say the same for Jaden Sancho as well, who had an absolutely brilliant game and i I was as a as a fan of banal footballers' tweets, I was pleased with ildefon's lima's offering after this did you see this he was the 41 year old substitute who Andorra had to bring on in the first half uh, and he was up against Sancho with inevitable consequences of a pulled hamstring Uh, so after the game he tweeted next time look to slow down followed by several race car emojis and laughing faces uh, and then later on an image of himself having pulled his hamstring in agony when the sniper hits the target to the picture of himself Sancho calm down next time with several ambulance emojis and the Andorran flag. Um, so that was nice to see.
1: That was nice to see. Phil Foden, though, are we going to be seeing him in that deeper, pierre esque role, do you think, against Hungary?
4: I think, yeah, absolutely. Why not? Uh, the, the fact that Calvin Phillips is not available obviously means that there's a, a position there for him to do that. And, and the fact that the other area of the pitch where he plays is where England are, are so well stocked. It, it, to do it against a better opposition will give us a better read on, on his future in mm. that position. But he's so good. You know, I mean, He plays everywhere for City, doesn't he? He, he, he? You'd think that that would be something that he could adapt to without, without too much trouble.
1: Yeah, although I mean, England, I guess, a rather better staffed, at the kind of forward end, in terms of attacking midfielders coming in from the, the flanks and that. and It's worth pointing out as well that Pirlo himself was, like Foden, an attacking midfielder essentially in his early 20s until Carlo Mazzoni made the decision and then Carlo Ancelotti but more famously at Milan, decided to drop him back into uh, his, his kind of then definitive position just in front of the defence. So exciting times. Anyway, Hungary on Tuesday night for England, who are now unbeaten in 17 games in all competitions, three away from England's longest ever run, which was set back in the 1890s, by the way. Crikey. If that doesn't fire you up for November's fixtures, I don't know what will. Now, very shortly, we'll be talking about WSL and what was a huge weekend for them. First of all, though,
3: producer Charlie talks to Paddy Power. Thank you, James. I can confirm it is producer Charlie alongside Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. We, along with everyone else in football, are talking about the takeover of Newcastle. It's a divisive subject off the pitch, but there's sure to be some impact on it, especially with January around the corner. What has this influx of money done for the Magpies odds going forward this season, Carl?
8: Well, first things first, Charlie. Steve Bruce could well be gone by the time this podcast sees the light of day. The new City-backed owners look very much set on appointing a new man at the helm to lead up their new project. Roberto Martinez, the Belgian manager, is the latest big name to enter the market for Newcastle's next boss. The Spaniard who won an FA Cup with Wigan as a coach is the favourite now to replace the doomed Bruce at 7-2. to two, Eddie Howe, the former Cherry, who backed out of the Celtic deal late on, is the second favourite at 4-1. Then it's Conte 5-1. Stevie G, 11-2 to two, and Brendan Rodgers 11-1. to one. Exciting times at the two, no doubt, Charlie. They are now odds on at 4-11 to 11 to beat the drop and the January transfer window will be especially interesting this season with the Magpies sure to splash the cash in order to add some big names to their threadbare roster. So, with reinforcements, Charlie, in mind, they look a cracking bet at 17-2 to, to secure a top-ten finish. Veering back towards the
3: international break one last time, Carl, I'd be interested in your take on Kosovo v Georgia. Or failing that, England v Hungary. Up to you.
8: Well, Charlie, my sarcasm detector is on the blink at the moment. So Kosovo, our favourites at 11 to 10 to beat Georgia on Tuesday. They've already beat Georgia in Tbilisi before 1-0 and drew 1-1 with the Greeks. So they look like worthy favourites there. In terms of England, they are 1-8 to eight shots to beat the Hungarians at Wembley. The Magyars had impressed at with the recent Euros withdrawals with France and Germany in their group. But Southgate's Lions blew them out of the water in the second half at the beginning of September when after a scoreless first half, England marched to a resounding 4-0 win. England minus 2 in the handicap will be popular at 6-4. And have a look at Raheem Sterling in the first goal market, folks, at 100-30. He gave the Hungarians a torrid time in Budapest and opened the scoring that night too. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app.
1: Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. We were talking about WSL, the big weekend ahead on Thursday. Matt, it didn't disappoint. Is that fair?
4: No, it did not. Kicked off with a a brilliant Manchester derby 2-2 between United and City at at Lee Sports Village, which is United's regular home ground. Um, We've got Quite a rare thing in the WSL, which is a, a red card. There's a good good piece from Flo Lloyd Hughes up on The Athletic this morning uh, about this incredibly bad Georgia Stanway tackle. I mean, it's thigh high and then some, studs implanted. Uh, she apologised via social media, as is the style of the time afterwards, but said, there's no need for me to be getting all this abuse, which I obviously agree with, but also feels a bit like, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did type of apology Um, but City City were able to get a point anyway in fact they went 1-0 up shortly after this Uh, finished 2-2 and that I mean, it's a good result for the likes of Arsenal and Chelsea for a start mm. because City dropped points, but it's a really good result for City boss Gareth Taylor, um, who some will remember stinking it up for Nottingham Forest as a striker many years ago. Uh, but he was very, very much under pressure. They've got ridiculous injury problems at the moment, City, but they've been pretty poor at the start of the start of the season. But he can point to the fact that his team were down to 10 players for an hour and they still managed to get a point in in this, you know, obviously their their biggest game of the season in a lot of respects. So... Yeah, I think almost everybody will be happy with it. But United looking pretty good under under Mark Skinner so far too.
1: Okay, another good result for Arsenal. And Chelsea was Spurs, who had their first defeat of the campaign on uh, down at uh, Brighton on Sunday.
4: Yeah, Brighton have been good at the start of the season as well, actually. But Spurs could have gone top with a win. They were they were perfect before this, but but lost two one, and then Arsenal made sure that they they took advantage of that with a pretty routine win against Everton. Later on on Sunday, McCabe. Wubhamoy and Marnham with the goals. they got five wins from five. Three points clear of Chelsea and Spurs. That was after Chelsea really laboured against Leicester. They've made eight changes to the team, which started against Wolfsburg on Wednesday and they were pretty disjointed. Needed to wait till the 83rd minute to score through Penilla Harder and then Frank Kirby added a second late on Leicester have lost every game since they came up to the WSL so five defeats from five um, probably worth noting that the Chelsea players and staff joined arms before the game in a, a gesture of solidarity with players in the, in the US after those sexual misconduct allegations against uh, the English coach Paul Riley um, happier news I was quite pleased to see Emil Heskey uh, on the pitch mm. after the match and his new role of Head, head of Women's Football Development at Leicester
1: That's nice. Uh, And it certainly needs some developing, as you say. Uh, All the way down, bottom of the table, no wins from five. At the other end, Arsenal, five wins from five. a three points clear of Chelsea and Spurs, with Man United a couple of points behind those two. Excellent. Uh, We also had the nominations uh, for the women's Ballon d'Or this week,
4: Matt. Yeah, we did. There's a, a heavy... WSL representation in it. In fact, there's five Chelsea players alone up for the wow. award, Vivian Midamar of Arsenal and Ellen White too. I sort of feel though that it's going to be one of the Barcelona players who wins it, to be perfectly honest, because um, they've no, been no. Yeah, yeah, they're the standout team by by a long way. But it's good for the WSL that they've got so many representatives up there, but it but if it wasn't uh, Alexi Patelis or or Lika Martins, I'd be I'd be pretty shocked.
1: And you can see Barcelona in action this week. Uh, depending on where you are uh, they're in the Women's Champions League taking on, is it Kürger, Matt? Managed
4: by former Liverpool defender Dan Agger, Is that right? Alright mm.
1: uh, And uh, Arsenal are up against? Hoffenheim And Chelsea?
4: Chelsea playing Juventus managed by Joe Montemurro, who was the Arsenal manager up until the end of last season
1: Crikey Alright, well plenty of intrigue there And that's Wednesday night in the Women's Champions League. Uh, Brilliant. You're going to be doing the Totally Football League show a little bit later on today. or very shortly, but out a little bit later on today. So, Matt, just let me finish off by asking you, what are you going to be talking about with no championship?
4: Well, I mean, no championship, but plenty going on in Leagues 1 and League 2. We'll be talking about what happened on the pitch, obviously, but I think we'll delve into Joey Barton's pre-match interview with the Bristol Rovers' YouTube channel. I'm not sure if you saw this, James, but I'll give you some quotes from it anyway. Uh, He said he'd been to church last week, uh, had a good hour, alone with my thoughts. I realised I've been sent here to help this football club out of the doldrums. Uh, He added, I know how to get up high mountains, to be a Sherpa. That's my job, to lead young lads up footballing mountains they didn't think they were capable of.
1: All right. And you know what? I think he could do it. I'd be delighted if uh, Joey, a complex character, as I'm sure he himself would recognize, would, would, was able to tap into the more charismatic and focused uh, you know, parts of his personality. And, and best of luck to him and uh, everyone who's working with him. Very good. Uh, Colin, anything you're cooking up for us in the mirror?
5: Uh, not well, not particularly. I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to to the to the international uh, fixtures coming up this week. And I know, um, obviously, with the, with the group stage and the World Cup qualifiers, it's, it's all coming to this sort of the the crunch time I suppose for a lot of a lot of these games I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing how Wales get on um, mm. on Monday night against against Estonia and, and that was the they they drew it home to Estonia nil nil which is maybe a bit of a of a surprise and it might be the result that could potentially cost them uh, second place in the group um, but better news for Wales is that Gareth Beale is supposed to be back in training uh, later this month so he should be back for their uh november internationals and they they, they could obviously be be crucial and to see if I, if they can pip uh czech republic to that playoff spot so i'm looking forward to that and I'm, there's, quite, there's quite a few other games that, that should be uh, should should certainly be worth watching and as i said i think the international football in 2021 has has, has really probably over overperformed in terms of the expectations uh with the, with the euros and with the nation's league so i'm looking forward to these matches
4: Arsene Wenger entered the chat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll, be, um, we'll be rounding up all the uh, happenings from those Monday and Tuesday games in Thursday's Totally Football Show and, of course, hailing the return of League Football. So I do hope you'll be uh, joining us for that, listener. But uh, as you probably detected, that brings us to the end of today's show. So many thanks to Colin and Jules and Matt, producer Charlie and you, listener... And have a great week. We'll be with you again soon enough.
2: Cheerio.
3: You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power.
6: The Athletic.